The scripture today comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Jay Harvey, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Exilic Church, if you haven't met me before. I have uh, my day job is that I'm the executive director and assistant professor of pastoral theology at Reformed Theological Seminary here in New York City. But I love serving at Exilic. It's a great distinction that I have. I'm the only actual part-time person on Exilic staff, um, and uh, I'm privileged to hold that role. Uh, So it's great to be with you this morning. Um, We moved to New York City in 2018, and about this time, I preached my first sermon at Exilic. I think it may have been closer to Christmas, but about this time. So it's fun to be preaching the last sermon before Exilic lands in a a space that is just a wonderful place uh, for the next 10 years. As someone who ministers throughout the city and serves a lot of churches, I also just want to encourage you that this space is a great indication of God's blessing upon you as a people. I say you as a people because you're the church. And um, it's the only real significant Um, step like this that I'm aware of that's been taken uh, post-pandemic. And to have a 10-year place in that type of location is just something to be thankful for. I know that you know that, but just want to uh, give praise to God for his blessing of this place and this particular people. This sermon series is one that I often participate in. It's a series on the DNA of Exilic Church, which is embodied in our name. And so I want to begin by asking a question. And this is not a rhetorical question, so I really want you to raise your hands. How many of you are happy this morning? There's some slow hands coming up there. It was an honest crew. We'll ask it one more time, just in case somebody forgot. Um, I'm offering counseling after this <laughs> as well. But I'm glad, glad for your honesty. Let, let's try it one more time. How many, it's an actual question. How many of you are happy this morning? A few more, but it's an, honest, it's an honest crowd here at Exilic. God blesses honesty, apparently, with permanent locations, to be honest. So, <laughs> happiness is elusive, isn't it? It is elusive. And today we're going to talk about how happiness relates to the name Exilic. Um, if you can put the, uh, the refer up here, uh, one back to the title of the message. The, the title of the sermon is Describing a People waiting patiently for a better future. And that's good news for the three quarters of us who were honest and said, I can't really declare myself happy this morning. 
It's also a reminder for the quarter of us who did raise our hands that as happy as you may be now, you're still not as happy as you're going to be one day. I came to Exilic uh, largely, well, largely saying it too strongly, in part because of the name of our church. Our family moved here in 2018, the summer of 2018. I had a short break after pastoring a church in Newark, Delaware for 13 years. And then we began, I began the role at RTS in August of 2018. The first student that I met with in person was our own Heidi Wong. Heidi at that time was working in the college ministry at Exilic. She was a RTS Master of Arts in Biblical Studies student, and she was working full-time in consulting. And I remember meeting Heidi at that, what was then a, a brand new WeWork on 18th Street, uh, right in the common area there. And one of the early questions you'll ask if you're the director of a seminary is, where do you go to church? And she said, I go to Exilic. And I was like, say what? <laughs> she said, I go to Exilic. Now, as a pastor, I know about the exile in the Bible, but I was uh, intrigued because I never heard of a church named Exilic. Now, remember the, the, oh, by the way, Heidi has now finished this program, and she's graduating this Friday. <laughs> 66 credit hours with Greek and Hebrew, and I can talk to you about the program after that if you want. No, no but uh, congratulations to Heidi. Uh, it's a lot of work, and we're proud of her uh, for what she's accomplished, and uh, she, she, this Friday night, Central Presbyterian Church, 7 p.m., you're welcome to come join and celebrate. <laughs> a lot of exilic people will be there, so you can add to the number. But if you remember 2018 in New York City, it was good times in New York City in 2018. Rents were relatively low. I mean, you can't say they were low because they were obscene, but for New York City compared to now, they're relatively low. The place we were renting in 2018 is almost twice as much as it was then. Public safety was strong. Um, there was general confidence. And there were wall-to-wall -wall people everywhere you went. You could be standing in front of CVS, wall-to-wall -wall people. You could be in Madison Square Park, wall-to-wall -wall people. Herald Square, wall-to-wall -wall people. This was New York City was booming in a sense. And so one of the reasons I was so impressed and intrigued by the name Exilic is immediately I knew that this name of the church conveyed a message, a very clear message, that as good as it is in New York City, there's something better. As good as it is in New York City, there's something better. A people who are in exile are as simply put as could be, not in their final home. The name Exilic says there's a better place for you. Now what's wonderful about this name is it doesn't necessarily critique the place where you are as being a bad place. People in exile can be in exile in a place that has wonderful things happening in it and it still not be their final home. So it affirms that there could be something great happening on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's a better future for you. Exilic 
describes a people waiting for a better future. Now you can see how this concept could be so powerful for our happiness. If you're happy this morning, the word exilic as your church is a healthy caution to remind you that it can be better. It can be better than where you are now and not to rest in whatever state you're in. There's more for you. And if you're not happy, it's a hopeful reminder that there is indeed something better that awaits you, so don't despair. There's always more happiness with Jesus in the future than in the present for an exilic people. Now, as we walk through this particular passage in Romans, it's a very helpful passage for us. The first thing that we'll see is we are not naturally a happy people. So if you advance the next slide, and then the one after that, you know, we're not nat- naturally a happy people. In our present condition, it's not the natural state to be happy. Now, here is something that divides global thought. Some traditions say that if we could strip away all the structures that have been established, whether externally or strip away all the attachments to external things, we could be happy. The Western tradition emphasizes the external structures. The Eastern tradition emphasizes detachment. And if we could just strip these things back and get back to a natural state, we would be happy. The Bible says that this is naive. That the greatest problem we have is that we need a relationship that can fill a void in our lives. And that relationship can only be with God through Jesus Christ. And this is an observation. This this whole science of happiness is something that is emerging as a whole field. And so if you look at this quotation, it's a quotation found in a wonderful book by an economist and a theologian called Becoming Whole. But it's a quotation of an NYU professor, Jonathan Haidt, where he says, the emerging field of the science of happiness lends considerable support to biblical understanding of human flourishing. For example, in this best-selling book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom, Jonathan Haidt, a professor of psychology at NYU, examines the teachings from a variety of religious and philosophical perspectives in light of recent scientific evidence and concludes this. (laughs) It's worth striving to get the relationships between yourself and others between yourself and work, between yourself and something larger than yourself. If you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. I wonder how many of us who are really not happy aren't happy this morning because of the relationship that we have with others, our work, or a sense of void with something greater than ourselves. So one key to happiness in getting to this place is to see that the present must be put in perspective by the future. The present we should see in light of the future. So if you go to the next slide and through that one, there you go. The Apostle Paul says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This is about 55 or 56, thousands of years ago. And the church in Rome was experiencing all kinds of suffering, especially physical suffering. And suffering can be psychological, it can be physical, you can feel it on the inside, you can feel it on the outside. But look at the contrast that Paul draws for them with their suffering, between sufferings of this present time and the future glory. He says that whatever we're facing, it cannot be compared to the future glory that is going to be revealed to us. And what is going to be revealed? Well, as this passage unfolds, what's going to be revealed is, one, a whole transformation of the earth. In verse 21, the water, the land, plants, animals will all be transformed. In verse 23, we're going to see that our bodies, our physical bodies, are going to be transformed. We're going to get a body like Jesus himself. And remember that in the Bible, there isn't this chronic dualism that we struggle with in the West, in the whole Western philosophical tradition. There's a unity of body, mind, and soul. And so what's being talked about in this passage is there's going to be a complete healing, spiritual, mental, and physical. That's what we have to look forward to, a new body and a restored and healed soul. In verse 23 of this passage, we're going to receive an inheritance in Jesus Christ as sons. See, they're going to be not only internal blessings, spiritual ones, not only healed bodies, but actual physical inheritance. And the language the Bible uses for this is out of this world. Streets of gold, incredible feasts, cross-cultural, multinational celebrations, and especially beholding God in person face-to-face. It's amazing. See, present happiness without hope of this kind of future quickly turns to anxiety. I mean, not to cause the other quarter of you to put your hand down, but how long can you keep this up? The things that are making you happy, are they really promised to you forever? For some, you may find this happiness in a, in a deep relationship with God right now, perhaps. But you see where I'm going. Even present happiness without a promise of future hope becomes sort of debilitating if you're trying to keep it up. On the other hand, suffering with future hope can be a source of incredible endurance and oftentimes even great joy. So it's important to relativize whatever's happening in your life today with a clearer view of the glory that's going to be revealed in the future. Now, this raises a question, which many people have. Why is it this way to start with? Why didn't God design a world where when you ask this question, everybody raises their hand because everybody's happy? just a world of complete and utter happiness all the time. This is one of the great questions of philosophy throughout the ages. It boils down to the problem of evil. And what I would suggest is that, if we can advance to the next slide, it's helpful to see that our frustrations that we experience that kind of frustrate our happiness are actually echoes 
from God's megaphone to a deaf world. This is a famous quotation from C.S. Lewis that may be familiar to some of you. So if you see that quotation is coming next. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I would suggest to you that it's most helpful for you today to take seriously what God's declared purposes for suffering are in Scripture rather than to try to resolve the problem of evil. Now, you can try to resolve the problem of evil. I I don't discourage you from doing that. People are still trying. It's just been thousands of years, and it's still a mystery. So it's not likely to help with your immediate situation. But though 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 the origins of evil are mysterious, God's purposes within this present world where there is evil are really, really clear. God uses evil He uses frustration, whether it be great or small, to cause us to focus on himself. He uses it to draw us to himself. One thing that we can learn in the Bible about the character of God is that God is hyper-relational. He's hyper-relational. There is a problem between him and the human race that the human race started. He didn't start it. But God aims to solve that problem. He aims to be reconciled. He aims to be number one in your life. He wants to be at the center of your life. He wants to be the source of your happiness and joy. And he has subjected the entire creation, the Bible says, to futility in order to make this crystal clear. To put in other kinds of of words, God is not interested in instrumentalizing relationships. I'm affiliated with a church planning network in Queens called Queens Connexus. And we say that we are a fellowship that does church planting. We're not a network that instrumentalizes relationships for the purpose of church growth. See, what we're emphasizing there that everything should flow out of the relationship. It shouldn't be instrumentalized. And that's God's point with putting everything in subjection. You're never going to find everything you want in this world. It has been subjected by God to frustration to cause you to look up to him. Now I want to consider some responses to frustrations. Uh, if you go to the next slide, there's, let's consider three responses. I mean, there's many ways that we respond to frustration. I just want to take three. We can respond with action. Action plus hope. And then in action. Let's walk through these together. Barbara Walters. Now, uh, I realize Barbara Walters was 93. She just died uh, not even two weeks, December 30th of last year. Barbara Walters died. Raise your hand if you ever saw a Barbara Walters special. Yeah, some of us are old. (laughs) Raise your hand if you know who Barbara Walters is. Okay, it's history time. (laughs) Uh, raise your hand if you're a woman oh come on there's more women (laughs) raise your hand if you're a woman who works in the marketplace I know you're working in the home for sure that's that's a lot of work but if you're working in the marketplace okay if you're working in the marketplace 
you have Barbara Walters to thank for many, many things. Why? Barbara Walters was the first female news anchor. She, was, she began as a co-host in 1976 with a guy named Ed Reisner, I believe. Um, it's hard to recall his name. Her, her, no, I'm sorry, Harry Reisner. Harry Reisner. In 1976, when she began as a co-host, dealing with the misogyny of the day, Harry Reisner said, I'll take her as a co-host, but I get to ask all the hard news questions of any interview, and the only thing she can do is make commentary. No questions. I write the questions, I choose the questions, I ask the questions. She can just add color to everything. And so Barbara takes this job, she's on national television. That in itself was a groundbreaking thing. Now for those of you who don't know who she is and have kind of grown up in the current media environment, you have to understand that at that time, the three networks were like, the, the anchors of the three networks were sort of like national pastors. They imbued incredible confidence. You trusted what they said to be true. Um, there, there, there wasn't a sense of a propaganda coming through. I know those of you who are in, you know, in graduate studies are like, yeah, there was propaganda. They didn't know it. But I'm saying that was the culture. We, people in the United States trusted the news then. You had the three major networks. So for her to become a co-anchor was a major, major thing. So what did Barbara do with the situation where she wasn't able to ask any questions? Well, there's another clause in her contract that allowed her to do something called specials. And if she did an interview on her own and turned it into an individually produced special, she could do whatever she wanted. She could ask all the questions, she could be involved in the editing and, and everything. And that became the Barbara Walters special. And for, for many of us, we grew up with these sort of, is kind of the markers of our life, watching the Barbara Walters special. Uh, Barbara Walters' last great act was The View. She created The View. Some of you are familiar with that show. But in, the, in a documentary that was put together very quickly on her life, she, she said this. She said, the special saved me. I did as many as I could. Meaning, it was the one place she could really exercise all of her gifts. Why do I present her as an as as example of action? There she is, gifted, talented, groundbreaking person. Um, she did the best that she could do with what she was given. She took action. And in her case, she lived long enough to see an entire legacy built. There, she was being interviewed uh, as part of this documentary. It was obviously taped before uh, her death, uh, but fairly recently. And she said that she was really proud of her legacy and how many doors were open to women in journalism and I would say to women in the marketplace in general, due to her cultural influence as a trusted media personality. So she lived to see the fruit of her labors, action. Now let's consider this other person that you should know. How many of you have ever heard of Alude Equiano? Hey, Alude Equiano is an 18th century African man 
who was enslaved as a child in what we now consider Nigeria. He was born in 1745, died in 1797. He was transported to enslaved in the Caribbean. And remarkably, he worked to obtain his freedom in 1776. He returned to England and he wrote a narrative called The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Alude Equiano. It was a memoir of the horrors of slavery. Equiano was a man of great, great faith, great trust in Christ, and a great conviction about God's purposes in the world. This memoir went through nine editions in his lifetime, and it was instrumental to gaining national support for the British Slave Trade Act of 1807, which abolished the English slave trade. But Equiano died in 1797. He never saw the fruit of his labor in the way that he wished. And he certainly never lived to see the abolition of the, trade, of the slave trade and enslavement in North America that he was part of himself. But he labored with confidence and perseverance in the cause of righteousness. Why? Because he had action mixed with hope. He had action mixed with hope, knowing that God had a better future. And you see, if you don't mix hope with action, it often leads to exhaustion or even sometimes destruction. You get exhausted because you don't see any fruit from your labors. You wonder if this is all going anywhere. Is this completely helpless? Or maybe you turn to a violent sort of revolution and start destroying everything around you because you're so frustrated. You don't think there's any hope without resorting to extreme means. It's another response to frustration. This action mixed with hope in God's purposes for the world in Christ. But a third response can be inaction. Now, inaction is rarely the response to frustration for the Christian. We should pause here and say that there's a distortion of Christian theology that goes like this. Because we're all going to heaven, it means we don't have to do anything on the earth. That's just putting it simply. That is a distortion of the Bible's teaching. Sometimes used to justify great injustice, sometimes used to justify great indulgence. The idea that heaven awaits, therefore, this earth doesn't matter. The opposite is true. So let's think about Paul in prison. The Apostle Paul finds himself in prison in AD 67. He's in Rome. He's about to be executed. Undisputed fact of history is that Paul was executed in Rome. He could not change the circumstances of that imprisonment, and he was powerless as an early Christian apostle before the emperor of Rome. So in that relative in that situation, we could say that he could not take any action. Inaction was all that he had left. And yet he had hope. Even his inaction became its own kind of action. Not only a praying in hope, but a waiting in hope. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
Paul could stare death in the face and not be terrified because he had hope in what God was going to bring him in Jesus Christ. And from that prison, he wrote the letter, 2 Timothy, which is inspired and encouraged and will be used in officer, <laughs> officer training, uh, diaconate training at the exilic. So even in inaction, there is a kind of action, an action of trust in prayer and waiting. So if you go to the next slide, what do we make of this? Action, inaction, action mixed with hope. The point is that God's ultimate purpose for us in our frustrations is always that we seek his hope for us in Christ. It's always that our eyes would be lifted up to Jesus. And since this whole world is subjected to a curse leading to futility, there are plenty of markers planted throughout our experience that call us to lift our eyes to Jesus. And that's the purpose of God. Look at um, the next slide. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The hope is a person. The hope that awaits us is in a person, and that person is Jesus. Next. Now, if you find yourself really frustrated, if you find yourself really happy this morning, I'm not here to say just turn to Jesus and all of your frustrations are going to go away uh, immediately. Not at all. There's going to come a future time for that. All of your problems won't go away. In fact, honestly, you may get introduced to new problems. Uh, there's going to be new calls to follow Jesus in new ways and relationships that could cause even more difficulties or different kind of difficulties than you're experiencing now. But there is an incredible freedom that comes to you in Jesus Christ. An incredible freedom. If you look at the scripture, verse 21, there's going to be a future day when this, uh, there's a freedom from bondage to corruption on the part of the creation and a freedom given to the glory of the children of God. So what this means is, when Jesus returns, all creation is going to be set right. There's great images of this, like lions laying down with lambs, children playing with cobras, stuff like that. <laughs> we don't know. It's, it's mysterious. But this world is going to exist in a transformed way. And when Jesus returns, all of those who have a relationship with him will be fully healed in mind, body, soul, and receive this eternal inheritance that's going to be the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what awaits us in the future, but we do have a foretaste of it in the present. As David said in the call to worship, we have a trial offering of this freedom now given to us that is sweeter than anything else, even though we're experiencing it in a, in a creation that is still subject to futility. So actually, the, the Christian comes into this place. If you if you know Jesus Christ, you're in this place of irony. Go to the next slide. The irony of freedom and holy discontent. What do I mean there? It's like when you've tasted true freedom, you want more, not less. 
I don't know if you have ever heard the name Francis Grimke. How many of you ever heard of Francis Grimke? Francis Grimke was an African-American minister in Washington, D.C., a correspondent of Du Bois and Frederick Douglass. Um, he was trained at Princeton Seminary. He's the first black graduate of Princeton Seminary. He was uh, not only a Christian, but a Presbyterian minister of the very same theology of your pastors at Exilic Church. And um, his voice has been somewhat suppressed when it comes to racial justice. I mean, as we see with Dr. King, you know, he lift up certain aspects of what uh, Martin Luther King says and, and not others. But similarly, Gr Grimke had some, some sharp things to say, some challenging things to say to white America when it came to racial justice and well, as well. And one of the things he said was, um, it said to the Negro, speaking of his day, it said to the Negro, look at what you've gained. Why don't you be happy with what you have? This is in the Jim Crow era of this country. And Grimke said, it is contrary to nature for human beings to taste freedom and not want more. Isn't that true? It's contrary to nature to taste freedom and not want more. It's the same when you taste the freedom of Jesus Christ. You want more, not less. For me, this first happened when I was in middle school. I was a middle school, I was a middle school student, already exposed to many damaging things this world had to offer, and I felt fresh life and freedom and satisfaction beyond comparison when I first met Jesus. I began a relationship with Jesus. Um, it was something that changed my life completely to this day. And it led even then in me to a strange sense of discontentment. Because once you've tasted of Jesus, you can't be satisfied with anything less. And this discontentment becomes a really good thing. And this is why it's, it's bad theology. It's, bad, it's, it's, it's a distortion of Christian theology to say, because you're going to heaven with Jesus, it doesn't matter. Right? The good thing about this holy discontentment is it leads you to strive to make things right around you. Your relationships, your work, your church, your neighbors. It's a beautiful thing because this discontentment is a discontentment driven by an ultimate sort of contentment. And so you can be discontent with your level of productivity now, not because you need to eat that productivity to live, but because you're already so satisfied in Jesus, you'd like to see more happen. You can be discontent with, what's ha with, the, with the reach of your church, not because you just want to be at a killer church or something like that, but because you're so satisfied with Jesus that you'd love to see your church even be more like Jesus' church. You can help New York City because you don't have to eat it to live, because you're so satisfied in Jesus that you have something driving and empowering you to be a service to the whole city. We experience this incredible freedom. You can go to the next slide there. Through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, so verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. And it says that we groan inwardly because we just want more of who God is. We want to see God finish this great work that he's begun in us. So one point for the new year. As you seek to nurture your own happiness and communion with Jesus, your groaning inwardly will be a good thing. That's a positive groaning. That's a groaning that actually feels good because it's a groaning that's coming from the Holy Spirit himself. It's a groaning of satisfaction. But one of the things that we do to retain this focus on Jesus is we stay together. 
one, one, week, one day out of the week, we gather together, at least one day out of the week, to worship, to set our eyes on the hope of Jesus Christ. God has provided a wonderful place for the next 10 years for Exilic Church to gather together. Let's all make it a priority uh, once again to be there, to encourage one another as we wait um, patiently for a better future by fixing our eyes on Jesus. So back to our name, the final couple of points here. We're waiting patiently in exile until we all come home to the final work that Jesus is going to do. Go through um, the next slide there. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope, is, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. How do you hope for what you do not see? That's the work of faith, but it's also what we're doing here every Sunday, the first day of the week. And Jesus himself is going to be the object of our hope, and therefore he's what I call the object of our waiting. We can only be patient. We can only be patient through trusting and looking to hope with hope to Jesus. The one who the Bible says is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who writes the story of our lives. And the final slide here. See, it's Jesus is the object of our waiting. He's the one who is the source of our joy and our strength. As we seek justice in the broadest sense, relationships, work, suffering. So when it comes to justice, Jesus has brought the ultimate justice, and he's paid the ultimate price. The reason we have this void within us is because of what the Bible calls sin, which is our rebellion against God. And rather than reject us and judge us, God graciously takes that to himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus pays the ultimate price for justice. That has two implications. One, it means we're willing to suffer for justice because we know that Jesus paid the ultimate price so that we could have a justice with God and be in relationship with him. But we also know that as much as it is to set things right on this earth, it's always essential to seek to present people with the justice that's been accomplished for them on the cross so that they can have ultimate happiness. Because you can have any kind of outward manifestation of justice you want. And if people are not in relationship to Jesus Christ, they're not going to be truly happy, not now or for eternity. So Jesus changes the way that we think about justice. Jesus changes the way we think about relationships. We patiently love our neighbors as ourselves, including those closest neighbors, those family members and friends that are the hardest ones to love. Every relationship is an opportunity to, opportunity to draw close to Jesus for the strength to love that person as he has loved us. Jesus changes the way we look at our work. We know that our labor is not in vain, the Apostle Paul says, because Jesus is advancing a program. He's spreading his kingdom throughout the world, and the smallest things we do for Christ now are part of a glorious tapestry that Jesus is doing all around the world. It's like whenever you go to a beautiful work of art that's quite large. The prodigal son in the hermitage um, 
I, I had the privilege of seeing that when I was a student in Russia, in St. Petersburg, Russia. It's a very large painting. I mean, if you go up close to a painting like that, you can't behold everything, can you? You can only see like right, what's right in front of your face if it's a large painting. That's the way our work is. We can't see what's happening with the small things that we're doing. They may appear insignificant to us. So we're reminded to, to do it as unto the Lord. Why? Because there's intrinsic value in doing things for him, but also because this work that we're doing is part of something big that Jesus is doing in the world that we may never fully perceive, but we can be sure is happening. You can see Jesus more clearly while you work than you can see the fruit of your labors, but you have no idea how your contribution will become part of God's story for the world. And lastly, suffering. We understand that every suffering we experience is an opportunity to draw close to Jesus Christ. He suffered the ultimate suffering for us in his death on the cross. He subjected us to this suffering that we could be restored to God. And when we suffer, our eyes are just lifted up to him. Because in exilic people, we know in Jesus Christ, our future is not only better than our past, but it's always better than whatever present we have, too, in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are reigning over all things. And we ask in the new year that you would nurture a rich faith in us as an exilic people waiting for a better future. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.